calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Lightspeed. Hello, and welcome to the Lightspeed Magazine Story Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Freund. Lightspeed Magazine is edited by John Joseph Adams, and our podcast is produced by Skyboat Media. Today's story is Starfish, by Karen Tidbeck, narrated by Judy Young. This story is copyright 2016. Karen Tidbeck is the award-winning author of Yaganath, Stories, and Amatka. She lives in Malmö, Sweden, where she works as a freelance writer and creative writing teacher. She writes in Swedish and English, and has published work in Weird Tales, Tor.com, Words Without Borders, and anthologies like Fearsome Magics and The Time Traveler's Almanac. And so, it's time to buckle up, because we're going to light speed. Starfish by Karen Tidbeck on the third day of the sightseeing trip, among walrus-laden icebergs, they run into slurry. At the fore, Skipper sticks a boat hook into the water. There are plenty of critters here, he says. It's like playing grad bag. You'll always catch something on the hook. He thrusts the boat hook up and down a couple of times, stirs it in the slush, and pulls it out again. A transparent little rag is impaled on the tip. Skipper shows it to the tourists, where they stand lined up in their bright thermal clothing. They gape at him like schoolchildren. These, he says, are great with fresh cucumber. The rag squirms. A couple of the tourists turn gray in the face. Anyone want to try for themselves? Skipper asks. Half of the tourists raise their hands. The other half turn away in disgust. All of them had fish for lunch, but they hadn't watched the fish die. 
The walls of Kim's cramped cabin are painted with huge portals that look out on an eerie underwater landscape. On the sandy ocean floor, a fat mermaid covered in barnacles sits on a rock. A monstrous anglerfish floats above her, its lure bathing the mermaid in a greenish shimmer. It's somehow colder down here than on deck. A damp chill radiates from the walls. Now and then, something bumps against the boat and makes it boom like a drum. The ice scraping on the hull makes a noise like a rock slide. The two nights she has stayed here, Kim has woken up in panic, sure that they must have hit an iceberg. But the ship stays afloat and chugs farther and farther north. Around them, walrus bulls sing in drawn-out foghorn howls. This trip is supposedly good for her health. It'll help her recovery. All she can think is how going elsewhere isn't enough. The world she had emerged into will still be there when she comes back. On the fourth day, as they drink coffee on deck, the boat slips into an enormous ice cave. Its ribbed vault is slick and blue. In the wall, someone has carved out a landing on which the tourists disembark. The sound of boots on ice is more muffled than Kim had thought it would be. Look, Skipper says, and points at a spot in the wall that seems to glow with its own light. Do you know what this is? Anyone? No one speaks. Skipper scratches at the ice with his finger. It's surprisingly porous. Before long, his nail has punctured the surface and a glowing thing pours into his hand. It looks vaguely like a gelatinous starfish. Its yellow luminescence faintly lights Skipper's face from below. That thing I showed you on the boat. Skipper makes a stabbing motion with his other hand. This is another part of their life cycle. They attach themselves to the bottom of the icebergs, you see, and kind of seep up through the ice. If I hadn't taken this little fellow out, it would have made it all the way up to the top. It'd have taken it, oh, a year or so. Kim thinks of a year, two years, pushing up through solid ice and has to remind herself to breathe. And then, someone asks, and then it's food for the seagulls. That's it, Kim says. There must be a point to it. Of course, Skipper replies. It lays eggs in the seagull's stomach, and the seagull shits out little baby starfish into the ocean. The glowing critter twitches in Skipper's hand. He sticks it to the wall and moves on into the tunnel. The others follow him. Kim watches as the starfish fails to hang on to the wall and drops to the floor. On an impulse, she picks it up and puts it in her empty thermos mug, then fills it with the ice shaving skipper left behind. She screws the cap back on and follows the others. 
After maybe 50 meters, the frozen floor gives way to striped granite, polished smooth by millennia of traveling ice. Now that they're farther from the cave opening, the light fails, and the aquamarine grays over into gunmetal. Here and there, faint smudges of light dot the walls. More starfish fighting their way toward the surface. The tourists bring out their flashlights and gawk at a series of rock carvings that depict people fishing. When it's almost dark, Skipper takes them back to the boat. Kim opens the thermos mug and sets it down on her nightstand. Inside, the little starfish bobs up and down in the water. It somehow seems content. Dinner is sailor stew, which Skipper inevitably quips is made from real sailor. The meat is tough, the sliced potatoes undercooked. The other passengers are very enthusiastic. They talk about the carvings they saw today. Who made them? Why here? What do they mean? When Kim speaks up, they smile vaguely, then turn away. Skipper teaches them shanties. Much later, Skipper passes out plum brandy. Those who are still awake sit with him on crates at the fore, bundled up against the paralyzing cold. Ice rattles against the hull. The moon is down, but the fat band of stars above spreads a ghostly light. Kim realizes she has forgotten how bright the sky can be outside the cities. I'll tell you about the iron coffin, Skipper intones. I'll tell you what every sailor in these parts knows. He pauses for effect. It's not an actual coffin, of course. It's a place. Now, it's on a main route, so everyone has to cross it now and then. It doesn't look like anything in particular. It's just open water. But when the moon is full, it's dangerous. Some say it's because the seabed is rich in minerals, Others, that it's some kind of paranormal phenomenon. Some say it's cursed. Whatever it is, if you get close to that place under a full moon, your compass will stop working. It'll point in the wrong direction. And you can't use the stars to navigate either, because they'll shift, and all of a sudden, they'll be in the wrong place. So you think you're navigating on target, well away from the coffin, when in fact you're heading straight toward it. And most ships that go there disappear. Nobody knows if they're just dragged under or if they go elsewhere. But the crew on ships that got away talk about bright lights and strange noises. There's a special map for the full moon, and you have to use that even though the compass and the stars tell you that you're going the wrong way. The sharp aroma of plum brandy wafts over the deck as Skipper drinks from his cup, then lets out an, 
Ah! and rubs his chest. That's all for now, kids, he says. Good night. The tourists shuffle inside. Skipper remains at the fore, staring into the gloom. Kim sits down beside him. He hands her the cup. The brandy burns her throat. When Skipper speaks again, his voice is hoarse and has lost its overdramatic tone. There was a captain I knew. He had a daughter he loved more than anything. His wife died in childbirth, so he took his daughter everywhere, and he tried to be both mother and father to her. But she wouldn't love him. Maybe she couldn't love at all. The captain, he despaired. He thought that if his daughter didn't love him, then his life was pointless. He looks up at the galaxy's arm. He went to sea one night when the moon was full, and he threw his map away and navigated after the stars. He figured he would capsize. Skipper cries quietly into his beard. Did he? Kim asks. Skipper shakes his head. He came out the other side. And then what? Then he went about his life. Did he ever try again? No. Why not? He wanted to, but he was afraid. Afraid of drowning in cold water. Afraid that he wouldn't drown and that he would return to where he came from. Where he came from? I thought you said he came out the other side. Yes, the other side. I wish I could go, Kim says. Skipper looks down at her. Now why would you want to do that? You're young. You have everything to live for. Kim looks back at him. You don't know me. I don't, but it can't be as bad as all that. That's what they all say, Kim replies. Good night. In the cabin, the thermos mug is empty. It's only when Kim has turned the light off to sleep that she sees the starfish. It has crawled up along the wall and ensconced itself in a corner next to the mermaid. It shimmers in yellow and green. On the fifth day, they anchor at a little pier on a rocky island. The only building on the shingle beach is a little fishing shed. The tourists mill around on the beach, looking at rocks and sticking fingers into the water with squealy delight. Skipper looks at the spectacle from the pier, arms crossed. He's just told the group about the slabs of what looks like concrete sticking out of the water. An ancient road, he says, that goes over the ocean floor right to the iron coffin. The slabs look like regular concrete. 
Is it true? Kim asks him. Skipper shrugs. According to the tour package, it is. So it's not so far from here? No, it's not so far from here. Skipper pauses. So what happened to you? I was ill for a long time, Kim says. It changed me. Skipper pats her on the shoulder. His eyes are kind. Kim briefly takes his hand and holds it. His calluses rasp against her glove. I don't want to die, Kim says. It's just that there's nothing here for me anymore. And so you want to go to the coffin? I thought maybe there'd be something else. There may be, Skipper replies. The starfish might not be there. The walrus bulls might sing another tune. But nothing will be better. Don't you ever get homesick? Kim asks. Always, Skipper says. But there's no point. Maybe she's changed. Probably not. Then bring someone who likes you. Skipper looks over at her. Kim blushes. You don't know me, he says. No, Kim replies. But I do like you. And that's the first time that's happened in years. Skipper clears his throat. Well, I like you, too. The silence after is easy, not awkward. On the fifth day, they arrive at another island with a Viking-style longhouse. They're to stay there for the night and see what it's like to sleep between furs. They cook a communal meal on the boat. They sing shanties. Skipper tells a funny story. He looks at Kim every now and then, a little too long to just be accidental glances. When she smiles at him, his face brightens. His teeth are brown and crooked, but it's an infectious smile. Late at night, Skipper beckons Kim outside. The full moon glows on the horizon. Listen, Skipper says. Tomorrow's stop is as close as we're going to get. Are you saying we'll go? Kim asks. What would happen if I said no? I'll go home again, Kim says. And wither. Do you really believe that? Kim nods. You could stay up here. We could get to know each other, Skipper says. We would still be here, Kim says, which is where I can't stand being. Skipper fumbles for her hand. For you, then. The tourists come running out of the longhouse as Skipper starts the engines and steers away from the pier. 
Kim watches from the deck as they crowd on the pier, wailing. The next tour boat will pick them up. She walks to the fore to watch the prow split the black water. The stars seem to shift. The ship speeds up. Kim looks over her shoulder at the cockpit, where Skipper stares out of the window. His face is streaked with tears. Kim waits for the impact, or the fall, or the updraft, whatever it is that's coming. Ahead, the galaxy's arm opens wide. Welcome back. You've been listening to Judy Young reading Starfish by Karen Tidbeck. We hope you enjoyed it. If so, please help spread the word by leaving a review or rating at iTunes or the social media venue of your choice. Our editor is John Joseph Adams. If you are not already a subscriber to our Hugo Award-winning magazine, check out our many options at lightspeedmagazine.com slash subscribe. The good people at Tor Books are our sponsor this month. By the way, we'd like to give a shout-out to all of our friends who have been nominated for Nebula Awards, and especially to Brooke Bolander and Amal El-Mutar, whose nominated stories appeared in Lightspeed, and Alyssa Wong, whose story appeared in our sister magazine and podcast, Nightmare Magazine. Skyboat Media, the most respected independent audio production team on the West Coast, produces the stories for this podcast. They are headed by the Audi and Grammy Award-winning narrators Stefan Rutnicki and Gabrielle DeCure. Check out their website at skyboatmedia.com. Music and sound logos are composed and performed by Jack Kincaid, and post-production for Lightspeed is in association with yours truly. This podcast is copyright 2016 by Lightspeed Magazine. Thanks for listening. That's all for now. See you on the Bitstream. I'm Jim Freund, wishing you cheers from all of us at Lightspeed. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.